John Leonard Lopez. Many important news stories get little or no attention on the establishment media, often until they can't be ignored any longer. To help us learn about them before they reach a crisis point, we've been inviting to our show one of our favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. He also reports regularly for Salon, The Village Voice, and a number of other prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me, Leonard. Oh, you're great. Although the fire in the the Grande Costa de Vario, the Newark cargo ship that fire that killed two Newark firefighters, was a major news story for days, you've reported that the fire department of New York wasn't called until long after midnight, although the fire was first dispatched in Newark at 9.30 p.m. the previous day. What took so long? Do we know? Yeah, it's... Yeah, so this is a question of the borders and this, uh, the question of jurisdictions can really get in the way of managing something as um, significant as a port fire. And so while we will tell you that, um, and just I have to just say, uh, because today the, uh, the funeral services, uh, firefighter Akabu and Brooks, uh, beloved firefighters um, gave the ultimate sacrifice in the full measure to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Wednesday, uh, 9.30, it was uh, called in. It was in the ironbound section of a port of uh, a port of Newark. And so it's important to understand that that is actually a constellation made up of Bayonne, Elizabeth, Jersey City, and Newark. And um, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey... Uh, defers entirely to local fire departments to respond. And we can talk more about that and unpack it. But it really is uh, sets up a situation where we had the mayor of, uh, of Newark, Roz Barak, a former high school teacher, the son of uh, the revolutionary poet Amir Barak, of course, who said at the, uh, the night that these uh, firefighters were killed that his uh, firefighters were not trained for... Uh, Marine firefighting, and it's important to understand that marine firefighting is not structural firefighting. It is the uh, akin to like fighting a fire uh, in a metal box, uh, and with all kinds of random things. Where unlike a structural fire, it's not like the same, uh, you know, uh, distances between walls. It's a whole different universe, and so it is just really troubling that it it took. That because I guess the, um, the my sources of the fire department say that the mutual aid request was confirmed at 1 a.m. So that means that you had a number of hours. Now, uh, I can take you through the the uh, the tick tock of the fire because that's important. Uh, I'm not saying the experts I spoke to in the veteran firefighters. I have a, several in-depth pieces on this one at City and State, one at Work Bites, one at Insider NJ. Uh, that really take this apart so people can understand what happened. So I don't know if you want us to go down that well, road. Well, we could we deal with important. it a bit. But I, I wanted to point out that I seem to remember you wrote 
for the New York Times in 1985. That's a long time You're ago. You're killing me. You're that, killing. You have to mention my name and that I was working in 1985. Well, you were like just that. a child, but you <laughs> you wrote that the FDNY, the New York Fire Department, has the region's only real marine firefighting capability. That's still true. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, uh, and that is also New York's a big city. It is, and also it's a much bigger port. And so one of the things that's happened with the political economy is that the port uh, the port of New York and New Jersey of the 1950s is not the same one So that we have today. So there's been a migration of commercial uh, uh, fuel activity to the New Jersey side. And so you haven't had – I mean, the Port Authority, you know, I just think – I've been covering it so long. It is such a corrupt organization. I know that there are many committed professionals that work hard and are like civil servants there who do they can, the best they can. But as a governance body, it has just let the region down repeatedly because of the fact of this quirky thing where they're like a duchy, Leonard. They're like the Vatican. So does it get uh, a they, pass from the corporate media? I would say I don't think people understand it. I think that the I don't think people quite understand uh, what it is, its legal standing. Uh, and so uh, the, so, you know, going back to um, the 1970s and the FDNY having to have such a hard time with the Port Authority, they didn't want to put sprinklers in the World Trade Center. Huh. There had to be a fire there first because the Port Authority has its own rules and regulations, uh, even when they and you may notice that at the airports, there is a robust we could say like passenger and crew retrieval system uh, that in the event of a fire, they and this is FAA mandated. But even there, the Port Authority got dinged for uh, several millions of dollars by the FAA by having improperly trained people. And so it is something that just escapes any kind of accountability, primarily because it is composed of in individuals at the leadership level who, have, if you will, have paid to play to get there. So you have uh, uh, like uh, Kushner's father. He was on the Port Authority. You have these these contributors, these real estate moguls, for the most part, that sit on that board to do civic good. And in the meantime, they get the inside track on where the port is going. And that's all part of the patronage. So that's the problem. The Port Authority is um, is a patronage machine. And here at this very basic level, they've. Um, uh, abdicated to local fire departments. And it's important to understand that a maritime fire is like the equivalent of a hazardous waste factory on water. Hmm. And so, I mean, just to, to give you a sense of the plantation mentality here, and it is that, imagine this is set in Ironbound and that the good people of Ironbound are already dealing with some of the worst asthma rates in the country, maybe in the world, and that they're constantly dealing with the Port Authority's reckless Diesel pollution. Wait, then on top wait, of wait, that, wait, the the asthma rates and all of that is is because they're suffering from air pollution that's generated by the operation of the port. Absolutely, it's a whole it's a connection between the existing thing that's well documented uh, by the Melman Center uh, work done by Rutgers Medical School. Um, the these there are certain and it's true in New York City there are certain industrial corridors uh, that have. Um, and particularly when there's uh, 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 communities of color where they already have pre-existing conditions that are aggravated by this arrangement that's permitted 
Because that's how capitalism works. The people with the lowest level of influence deal with the largest, most toxic environmental issues. That's been that. Listen, it's been true before there was the United States. But I will just say that it's important to keep in mind here that add insult to injury, the city of Newark, and this is not widely understood, only 70 uh, percent of the land isn't even taxable by the municipality. It's excuse me. It's tax exempt because it has the port authority on it. Because federal, state, religious institutions, colleges, independent authorities and utilities, they don't even get to tax these entities. So then, add insult to injury, and in this case, mortal injury. You tell the local fire department you starve for resources. By the way, put our fire out, and then then firefighters die. Then there's a big funeral. And then people say, oh, maybe this isn't the most effective way to deal with it. And we honor the, the two firefighters who die. Um, well, what about the U.S. Coast Guard? Although it leads the unified command for the incident, didn't it limit the press conference that it had to give to just five minutes? Why? Well, and so here's the thing. One of the things that the, the Coast Guard has some uh, firefighting capability but it is it is now takes over the unified command of the response because this is like a floating hazardous waste site now. And like two football fields that are 14 stories high. Uh, and so there was a point of time because it was so badly botched that there was so much water being put on the fire. And it's important to know that it went, I think it burned for like six days, that they were worried about the uh, listing of it. And if it gotten to five degrees, it would have sunk in the channel. And then, oh, oh, the Port Authority would have been upset to channel Lewis Black. There would have been a loss of commerce. Oh, heaven forbid, we can't move more product. Because that's really what drives these guys. I mean, during the initial press conference, the Port Authority will talk more about the concern that you'll be getting your Amazon product. We'll get this out of the way as soon as we finish this mess. The reason why the Coast Guard kept it just to five minutes, they said it was operational, but the reality is now even the response is under investigation. So that tells you something. Uh, there's the whole question of what caught fire. Uh, there's the reality that initially the Port Authority, this is to give you a sense, this was uh, this is an Italian liner. It's had some problems before. It's kind of like an episode of The Wire meets Tony Soprano, right? So this is all bound for West Africa. Uh, first, it was 5,000 cars, then it jumped down to 1,200 cars, and then it was new cars, and then it changed to maybe some used cars, and then it was like, there's absolutely no electric cars, to then finally, they said, well, uh, we know the manifest says that there's no electric cars, but, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that in the port of Newark, the manifest didn't match what was in the cargo hold, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Well... Uh, New York uh, Fire Department has the only fire boats, so that was a consideration as well, wasn't well, it? Well, and the Newark one didn't start, so that's another thing. That good reporting by uh, NorthJersey.com uh, pointed out that apparently um, the 41-footer that Newark does have didn't start. Hmm. Uh, also, when they arrived there, they realized, the uh, local fire department realized their nozzles didn't match. This is something that Ros Baraka said at the uh, on the evening of of the first event of uh, the first day of the uh, event and the new york times reported this that basically they arrive they go and try to hook up 
to the the ship's firefighting system and then realize the nozzles don't match. So like there are just so many levels of this that are problematic and all of it is done in broad daylight. And by the way, if there was a fire today, this would be exactly the fabulous thing that we have set up to deal with it. If that right now. Well, it's a messy story. And yet my sense of the coverage on television has been mostly honoring the two firefighters who died. So that was obviously a decision made in, at pretty much every level and every radio and every radio and TV station. Well, I will tell you that there was some great coverage by the Times. The first three or four days had great reporters on it. And then, it, they, I don't know, they just kind of lost interest. Uh, so that, that was strong. Uh, I would say Mike Kelly from the Bergen Record had a great column. Um, one of the central issues here, and this is something that um, Andy, uh, Andy Ansbro, uh, the UFA president and a, a longtime veteran of uh, the Marine Fire Unit, uh, pointed out to me was that the key question here, and it, it's very conflicted what's on the record now. If there was no hazard to life, then those firefighters did not belong on that boat because then it's a matter of just property. And so early on, when I spoke to the fire experts, people in fire science, they were reluctant to say something that would be you know, disrespectful. But on background, what they were saying is uh, and, uh, that if there was no if the crew, in other words, if the crew was safe, I think there were 29 members of the crew, if they were all accounted for, because that's the first question. Mm. Maritime firefighting 101. Captain, is your crew safe and accounted for? That's the first question. We don't know if they asked that. Um, the union at their press conference uh, said it was not clear, but that's the most essential question. And then everything else kind of flows from there. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Bob Henley. Uh, he does a radio show here on WBAI and writes for many publications. This is BAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. Before we move on to some other topics, is there anything else you want to add about the fire? Well, I will say that I do think that uh, uh, Glenn uh, Corbett, who is uh, uh, the assistant uh, professor at John Jay, Fire science uh, said that this is really the point at which it's time for a regional fire academy. This is going on. We, this port is the busiest now in the United States. The last couple of months, this Amazon and this whole thing of real time delivery and people's addiction to having things delivered at home has really boosted uh, commerce. And so there's no reason why we can't afford uh, to have a uh, fully trained, uh, fully staffed, uh, maritime firefighting capability that also does port inspections when they're not because it's very expensive to maintain it and it's one of these things that there aren't a lot of fires aboard a ship but when they are there are great consequences we learned tragically with uh, the, the Slocum uh, where over a thousand people perished uh, I think um, in the early part of the 20th century I mean it's important to know of the four uh, four out of the 23 most deadliest fires in the last 150 years happened on the water. Wow. So this is something that, and I would say just in general, that we need in the age of climate crisis, where you have already just as like uh, the ambient air, wildfires in Canada, we have to look at fire suppression and 
um, prevention in a whole new light. I don't think America can get by anymore, Leonard, with 65% of the firefighters being volunteer in an age where we can't afford to have fires getting out of hand. When you can have something like Norfolk Southern disrespect East Palestine and so much of corridor America by having these reckless situations where they end up venting four tanker cars, five tanker cars of vinyl chloride and volunteer firefighters. I don't care if they voted for Trump, whoever they are, people that are willing to put their lives in the line for their community. And this country that spends hundreds of billions of dollars on wars that hope it doesn't fight can't even supply a self-contained respiratory device for these people. So if you answer the call when the bell rings in your community, you might ha not have lungs when you're 50. That's the way we say thank you, unless you are efficient enough to die, and then you get a nice arrangement. Well, hasn't global warming changed the equation in recent years? The reason, why, But we're still dealing with the situation in uh, under the older conditions? Well, that, that's exactly right. And so you're in a situation where... There's a need to look at the risk-threat matrix anew, and yet we're unable to do that. We had that with the bad air days. There was a, a very uh, consequential hearing led by Gail Brewer, head of oversight, uh, along with the uh, folks that are involved with the waterfront, the committee for the city council, looking critically at the mayor's response and the city's administration's response to what happened with those uh, uh, bad air days where we had the worst air in the world, where all of a sudden we were over 400 AQI. Mm. It's important to understand that American Lung Association tells us that 300, everyone needs to seek shelter. And so if you go and sit, sit through the hearing as I did, you'll see that we're making the same kinds of mistakes. There is not this sense of accountability. The systems don't, for instance, workers uh, city workers were unnecessarily exposed. There wasn't a uniform approach. And we kind of stumbled through that. On another front, uh, isn't there a rally and press conference going on right now in New York City Hall against Mayor Eric Adams's forcing New York City senior citizen retirees into an unwanted and substandard Medicare Advantage program? Yes, there is. And if I wasn't on this show, I would be there. Uh, my colleague, Joe Maniscalco, was there from Work Bites. Uh, yes, uh, there is, just to catch people up on this, because uh, 250,000 New York City retirees, uh, municipal, uh, former municipal employees, uh, are ha have been put in a situation where the city of New York, going back, I'd say, probably to de Blasio, uh, along uh, along with the, the city administration, along with the Municipal Labor Committee, to be fair, the larger unions, particularly DC 37, UFT, Teamsters 237, they believe that it was the best call to migrate uh, senior citizens, retired folks from the civil service into Medicare Advantage because the city would realize some $600 million in savings. It's important to understand that newspapers, significant newspapers like the New York Times and Kaiser Health News have documented uh, that this privatization of, of Medicare um, is uh, it diminishes the uh, the subscribers. Uh, what ends up happening is the private company uh, gets between you and the doctor and they they represent to the government 
CMS, that's the cash register that where the money comes out of Washington, they represent, this is what the Times reported, was that they tend to say that people are sicker than they are so they can get reimbursed at a higher rate. And then when the um, the subscriber or the retiree tries to access health care, then they're put through prior authorizations. And that VIG, if you will, that delta between what they're getting from the government and what they hold back in the way of access to care is their profit. And that is something that's proliferating. Now, the unions will say, DC 37, UFT, Teamster 237, that this is a different plan, that it's been tailored specifically. But the reality is today's rally um, is featuring very prominently 9-11 World Trade Center survivors, uh, FDNY families. It's important to understand that I think a big impetus behind this movement is that there are thousands of civil servants who are retired who weren't first responders, but were ordered to their uh, offices at 1 Center Street, 250 Broadway, because back in 20, uh, 2001, there was no Zoom. And so there were several thousand civilian employees dealing with very serious terminal diagnosis of cancer. And this Medicare advantage, and that's, I think, why the Judge Lyle gave this te uh, temporary restraining order to let stop the city from him putting in place, is that these folks documented in the court filings that their specialists would not take Medicare advantage. So it's really something where the city is reneging on a past promise it made. And this idea of not having um, the privatization of health care, being guaranteed access to health care, that was part of their deferred compensation. And many, like 30 to 40,000 city retirees, live at or below the poverty line. So they don't have any margin to try to help Mayor Adams balance his budget. Have you talked to Marianne Pizzatola, the president of the New York City Organization of Public Service Retirees, about what she hopes will come out of this? Yes, I would say she's usually she's on my show fairly frequently. She's been on BAI. She's um, what is interesting is that she is a head of the FDNY EMT Retiree Association. Um, when she was at Local 2507, she was uh, very helpful helping people apply for and work through the bureaucracy related to all the 9-11 World Trade Center NICERS issues. Uh, and so this movement, uh, I mean, I think the city tried to pull a fast one. Uh, you may remember that de Blasio first tried to do this, and they did it quite cynically in the midst of a pandemic and uh, really tried to rush it through. And um, luckily, the courts intervene. Uh, what what they're hoping with wait, wait. Uh, Mary is, is is uh, Adams blamed for a lot of things that de Blasio set in motion? Well, I would say that uh, this question about what's happening with the retirees to tell the full story goes back to Mayor Bloomberg. So Mayor oh. Bloomberg, for uh, several years, uh, did not renew any contracts. He basically had a, a scorched earth approach. Uh, he, he, while he hated the cab industry, he really hated unions. And so by not settling the contracts, he kind of set into motion what's happening now. And so then Mayor de Blasio comes in, aligned with labor, to his credit, settled over 100 contracts in 18 months, but in the process, drew down uh, the health stabilization fund and other funds that all of a sudden created this crisis. And so uh, de Blasio started the ball rolling for Medicare Advantage, selling off this uh, this promise. And so 
Mayor Adams just followed through. And it's so often the case, it really doesn't matter about party because the the um, the institution itself takes over the priority. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, mayor Giuliani, uh, when he was mayor, was very much involved with and aware of what was happening in lower Manhattan when Christy Todd Whitman came up with that now infamous line that the air was safe to breathe, which an inspector general report from the EPA uh, documented was uh, they didn't have the basis to say that. And the inspector general found that it was driven by the White House with concerns about keeping Wall Street open. Uh, there's been a request from Congressman Goldman and Congressman Nadler for Mayor Adams to release the files that would document what the city knew and when it knew it about the ambient air that has now killed more people than the actual terrorist attack. And Mayor Adams is closing ranks with Giuliani and won't release it. So that's what makes, you know, civil servants and retired civil servants cynical. But isn't he revoking a 57 year precedent that was that was guaranteed to all New York City's Medicare eligible employees upon retirement. That's he is seven years. He That's covered all the mayors you discussed. Well, the thing is that this was it, he fired the he pulled the trigger, but this was duly. Uh, we saw it, like I say, Bloomberg set the stage for it with his hostility to unions, and uh, I mean during that period of time, the unions uh, it really took it on the chin. And they just pretty much took it because they can't strike. And uh, Mike Bloomberg outmaneuvered them. And he ate their lunch year after year after year. I mean, there you do have to step back and ask, why is it that the EMTs, FDNY, are making so little money compared to firefighters? Why is it that such a huge portion of the municipal labor force makes su such little money? Like, why is it that the ML seems to be happy with some people making a great living and then a huge part of the workforce in this marginal situation. It is like a plantation. So we're talking about not just the fire department, but also the New York Police Department, the Emergency Medical Service and other official New York City. Agencies right. Every everybody who has who is retired from the civil service has this exposure. A quarter of a million retired New York City public servants. Right. And, and it's important to know that this Medicare Advantage thing has been going on for a while. And so one of the things that uh, is starting to happen is uh, nationally, there is now pushback happening because, to be honest, the AFL-CIO endorsed Medicare Advantage. The unions, in some cases, have cashed in on it because they saw it as a way of reducing health um, care costs and putting some money into the pocket of the union to keep it going, uh, and all of it to avoid what is really the issue of universal health care, which some unions say they're for, but in reality, they haven't done anything to advance that cause. Who came up with the concept of Medicare Advantage? Developed so if you program. go, I, it's something that I would say in this, uh, late, this whole idea of managed care and cost containment has its roots back in the HMO business and the idea of uh, having built into uh, care providers networks that would create some kind of accountability. Then in the 80s and 90s, you started seeing 
the uh, Wall Street increasingly get involved. And there's a great book, uh, Gretchen Morgenstern and Joshua Rosen called The Plunderers, which chronicles how uh, you now have venture capital firms and the likes of Aetna, which is, you know, CVS is the parent company, now just flooding the area and privatizing healthcare so that, according to that book, uh, venture capital firms and this kind of arrangement uh, control 40% of America's emergency rooms. So, and you now have more people aligned with Medicare Advantage with some kind of private uh, iteration than are part of Medicare. And so it's, we're basically subsidizing the demise of our own healthcare system. And Wall Street is now in there up to their eyeball. And so much we saw this is aggravated a lot of what happened with COVID, because particularly in the congregate care facility, these guys were ruthless. And it's covered very much in that book. You should have those guys on. Okay, well, if they send me a copy of the book, I'd be happy to look at it. Uh, but right now, I have to tell our audience that they're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. journalist. Um, you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. And uh, in fact, you can hear most of our regularly scheduled shows most of the times they're scheduled to, to be on. But there, we have all sorts of preemptions these days for fundraising and related matters. But he reports also for Salon and, and now the Revived Village Voice. Yay! <laughs> and of course, there's your book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work. Um, you've been writing an awful lot about the victims of the 9-11 uh, situation. Has anything improved? Well, um, I did hear that uh, there's the, uh, and I've got to still, it's, I would say it's uh, the, um, the provider of benefits, because there is a, a World Trade Center program that's administered locally. And then for all the people that live outside the New York area, and remember, 20 years later, with the way that we live our lives, there's a number of people that live outside of the area. So they have to have a program administered by a company called Sedgwick, uh, which is privately held. There were some complaints about it. Um and then it apparently it looks like they are trying to staff up. Um, I would say that um, one of the issues that is uh, still hanging out there is the fact that the program needs like a two to three billion dollar um, uh, kind of like bridge to to able to because remember, it's been reauthorized to 2090, but it needs to have additional money because I mean, one of the things that has gotten short shrift is the fact that there are so many young people that were caught up in this. Mm -hmm. And so in order to deal with the fallout from this uh, public health uh, disaster, uh, you have to set funds aside to provide health care for people that are now 
like in their reproductive years. So, I mean, one of the things that um, uh, doesn't get enough attention is the fact that Giuliani and Bloomberg, uh, they opened schools. The idea of getting back to normal was so important. There were dozens of schools that were opened in the hot zone uh, for those several months, basically from uh, 9-11 up until May of the next year. Uh, around 19,000 uh, K through 12 students uh, have an exposure here. Uh, there's been teachers have passed, died from World Trade Center, uh, support staff. Uh, there are a number of uh, universities. There's, of course, the uh, Borough Manhattan Community College, Pace. Uh, so there, there's a lot of uh, vulnerabilities out there. Now, just recently, the legislature passed the 9-11 Notice Act. Because uh, one of the things that's happened is a relatively small percentage of the civilian survivors uh, have signed up for the program. Uh, an important difference, a characteristic of the program is first responders, people that can certify they were there responding to the disaster and cleanup, they are guaranteed lifelong screening annually and commensurate health care. Survivors have to... Uh, show that they are sick. And so there are some medically ethical questions, uh, ethical, medical uh, ethic questions about that, because it also means that survivors are behind the eight ball by the time they realize it. And so this 9-11 Notice Act would require employers like our, our employer, WNYC, any employer that has a reason to believe that someone was working for them in the zone, and it's important to know that for the purpose of the health program, the zone is south of uh, uh, Houston and includes portions of Western Brooklyn. Uh, that's the World Trade Center Victims Compensation Fund that pays out. That's Canal Street and South. That's what you always hear about that doesn't include Brooklyn. So there's a lot of moving parts. Well, I was uh, in the area at the time. In fact, I even saw one of the planes go into the, the building uh, and yet, as far as I can tell, I haven't been affected, but, and I haven't heard much about it in recent years except for the TV commercials from law firms that are offering to take my case in case I do come down with a problem. Right. Well, and the thing is that people do not, you know, we are, this country, uh, when it comes to health care, we keep to ourselves, and so, um, so often I've run into situations where somebody has a condition and then you'll say, oh, well, where were you? And then together we kind of recall, well, you know, this could be an issue. I, I do think that the problem, there's been some focus groups that have been done about this, that people uh, assume that this program is only for first responders. Uh, and yet, you know, so some 80 to 90 percent are force responders are in the program. A lot of that had to do with the fact that as part of your job, if you're still on the job for the fire department or police department, you had this you had this annual screening that was required. But the other aspect of this is that just a fraction of of survivors uh, are even aware of it. And so I, I do think though that that what we do need with COVID coming now, you have an overlay. Um, I just think it's underreported on, and I think that. Um, I've noticed that every time it comes close to the anniversary, you do see uh, the number of people signing up increase. I'm sure that'll be the same this year. And what about all the kids who are in schools nearby? 
Well, uh, yeah, and that's and there's been some cases of precocious cancers that are hard to explain. Um, and the other challenge is that um, there has been some real challenges from a woman's health standpoint. Uh, the fund and the World Trade Center health program have been slow to recognize uh, 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 reproductive um, cancers. They're doing it, but it lags. Part of that is because of the fact that um, the group that was getting the premium treatment and the biggest focus were first responders, which are inordinately like some 90 percent male. And since so much of, uh, of uh, the way we deal with healthcare is based on analytics, uh, women were underrepresented. So finally, though, we are seeing uterine cancer and other forms of cancer that are unique to women considered. But it, it's a long process. I mean, one of the one of the things that is recommends this program is that it does continue to create and generate science and then reevaluate the program. So it's possible to have new cancers and new ailments that are documented in this population to be included. And that's 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 significant. You wrote recently that the United States is still having real trouble giving up its addiction and reliance on involuntary servitude. Is that another term for slavery? Yeah, it's a it was a quirky story um, around the idea of um, the uh, the period of time where the Constitution was reframed after slavery and the amendment gave it a, uh, I think it's the 13th, uh, while it outlawed slavery, it had an exemption, which was for the purpose of uh, punishing people for uh, for crimes. And so this has been something that has really gotten traction back in the day. It, it was very strong in the South, but now throughout the United States, this uh, literally prison industrial complex has grown up where um, inmates uh, do billions of dollars worth of business and can range from everything from making furniture to being part of a call center uh, that make private corporations all kinds of money. And they are paid something to little, little pennies or nothing at all. And so um, this is, uh, you know, an unusual, uh, it just goes to the meanness of the country. Uh, it's another aspect on the, uh, you know, the war on drugs. And that's why, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, we, we don't need reparations because that was a long time ago. No, well, there's vestiges of this inhumanity and cruelty that exists today. And this is one of them. Well, the American justice system incarcerates close to 2 million people annually, mostly people of color who are often jailed for nonviolent or drug-related crimes. Right. And that's, I mean, one of the things, and, and there's some indication that it's backed off a little bit, some of the aggregate data, because this stuff is like uh, the, the statistics are anywhere between 18 months to two years off. So there's some signs that the pushback uh, coming out of the George Floyd tragedy uh, is getting traction. But the reality is that this has had this um, horrendous effect, particularly in communities of color. And I've observed this doing beat reporting where you see um, so many families decimated by the war on drugs, uh, where adults were incarcerated uh, and then their children had to be raised by uh, grandparents uh, I mean, it's torn up entire communities. And then, of course, uh, even though society is reconsidering the so-called war on drugs, the stigma lives on and and try to get a job hmm. after you've been through 
um, this this mill. I mean, and so that's why I think that, and particularly now, I would hope with an economy that I guess there's seven to eight million jobs that aren't filled, that we could reconsider this um, these draconian policies uh, because we need the people. Well, hasn't the Vera Institute reported that although the United States has 4% of the world's population, we have 16% of the planet's incarcerated people? Yeah, I mean, that's very, um, yeah, it's it's something that I think has to do with the economic yeah. system. Uh, there's, the country really hates poor people. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing to keep in mind. And so there's a kind of just winner-take-all sensibility that keeps this pyramid, this wealth pyramid in place. And unfortunately, until there's a political transformation where, like as Reverend Barber refers to, the tens of millions of low wealth and low wage voters, until they actually engage, we're going we're gonna to be in the situation where uh, there's political points to be scored by being racist and by showing you want to punish people of color, where you want to use, uh, as it's been said, that the, the point is the pain. The point is to use the criminal justice system as a form of, of domination and racial supremacy. You've been covering a lot of Reverend Barber's activities. Do you consider him an important figure right now? I would say that um, pretty much I don't see anybody quite uh, doing what he's doing. And I would say that this, the cover story I'm referring to that you're referencing that I did it was for The Voice was based on it was a month ago. Uh, yeah, right. I spent three days um, covering the Poor People's pa uh, Campaign Moral um, uh, a Poverty Action Congress, which was made up of close to a thousand activists from 30 states who uh, met and studied together, prepared together and then went up to Capitol Hill. I was very impressed with the caliber of the activists. And I would say that. It is a movement of social transformation because each one of these individuals that came was a leader in their own right. And so um, I met Sierra Edmondson, a 28-year-old single mother of four from Nebraska, who was part of a very effective lobbying campaign to make sure that um, single parents with small children held on to their food stamp benefits that they had been able to get improved during covid you know, you meet dozens of people like that who weren't even born when Martin Luther King uh, walked this earth. And you have to feel optimistic. So that's why I say that he's different is that he's not a TV personality uh, where, you know, you know, people by the company they keep. And are they creating this deep bench of national leadership? And that's what he's doing. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Bob Henley. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Have you uh, been following the story of the former head of ex-mayor Bill de Blasio's security detail, uh, an NYPD official who's been suspended by the police department years after being accused of obstructing an investigation into misuse of funds? Uh, yes, uh, knew him when he worked uh, at City Hall. Uh, I maintain a desk there. Uh, I would say that this is just a case. And you do know, of course, that uh, I guess Mayor de Blasio was also fined significantly off of um, the use of the uh, executive protection detail during the presidential campaign. 
Um, I, I would say that, you know, um, one of the things that, and this is by no means an excuse, and, and the fact that the inspector was able to just, you know, pretty much didn't turn over the phone that was required when he did, um, it was uh, apparently scrubbed. Uh, DOI, Department of Investigation, flagged all this. Uh, and it is just an example, I think, of how when it comes to politics, there is a special um, kind of situation. They enjoy a kind of, I don't know, Teflon quality. And I mean, just look, uh, look at what happened with the Secret Service. I mean, with January 6th, I mean, that was a cover up, ongoing cover up. They all scrubbed their phones. And that's just like that's how they roll. And there's really no consequence for it. Are there any other stories you'd like to discuss in in the minutes that we have left? Uh, well, I would say that I, I did have the opportunity to uh, do a segment on my last show that looked at the 125,000 um, uh, nonprofit social service workers who are supporting and um, basically running the city's um, response to homelessness, which now I just saw the number is over 100,000 people setting all kinds of records. Uh, and so... It evidently, um, and I thought it was very creative. They they're part of like a coalition of 170 nonprofits that do this work. Back in the day, this work originally was part of the civil service, something the government did. And then, as so often happens, they had a bright idea like, well, how can we reduce costs? Because we want to keep making sure we don't tax the rich and make them feel comfortable. We'll sub this out to nonprofits, and then they won't have to pay benefits. And so. We now have this huge workforce doing the Lord's work, uh, providing some measure of compassion on the streets of New York in the middle of a truly uh, humanitarian crisis who are making poverty wages. And, you know, uh, that we're talking 125,000 people. They're down. Uh, there's a lot of openings in those positions. There's heavy turnover. And as anyone who's done this work knows, it's so important to have continuity of care with the undomiciled, and that's the thing they're not getting. And so, you know, I just don't understand, like, why is it? I wish it was uh, that we were in Paris because I wish I was know, in Paris. It, well, I'll tell you, it's because you know what? If the MLC was in Paris, there'd be a general strike. So these 125,000 people could have a living wage so that EMTs, EMS would have a living wage. But no, the attitude is that the MLC, I've got my six figures, you go get yours. Bob, is it fair to say that? Much of what we've discussed here doesn't get much coverage elsewhere, and that's another reason why people should support WBAI, which unfortunately is facing a major crisis of its own. Well, actually, when you look up WBAI in the dictionary, it says major crisis right next to it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, and that was nicely done, very deftly done, how you slipped that in. Uh, it is essential that we fight to keep this uh, uh, open and on the air. I've been hooked since the 1980s when I stayed up all night with my friends, drove down to Washington, made a 28-minute documentary about protest about the U.S. involvement in El Salvador, uh, came up sleepless uh, to 8th Avenue, handed it to Robert Knight, and then sat on 8th Avenue and listened to it over the radio. I've been hooked ever since. And I want a generation of, of young people to know that power, uh, to have that ability to actualize in time and space. And the only way that can happen is if people contribute. Well, even earlier when I was doing a midnight show, people like Abby Hoppen, who was on the run, would call in to talk about, uh, he, well, he called in to talk about 
what he thought was going on in this country, but he had to do it by calling a friend who would then forward the call <laughs> to the radio station because they didn't want to trace him. Absolutely. But, yeah, but I, the, he called BAI, not other stations. So were you, were you on during that period of time with Bob Fass? Yeah, oh yeah. I was here yeah. in, the, uh, in the 70s. Wow. The late Funny, 60s, circuitous, and here you and I are. It's like we're in a parallel universe. And then we did that. Well, I was there for a decade. You were at WNYC, and then here we are back here. That's kind of interesting. Well, WBAI Pacific is an important alternative to mainstream censorship because we address important issues that are often overlooked. We also give voice to the voiceless and marginalized among us. So um, I think that's a reason that many people listen. But it's also a reason why we think that it's important for them to do their part by calling us and supporting us. Right. And the other thing, too, is if, you know, you look at the soundtrack of WBAI and all the different things that are on here, whether it be we're dealing with the Hudson River and Holtex plans, the folks that are decommissioning India Point, they want to dump 1.3 million hmm. gallons of tritium, all the issues that are raised. If you can't afford to give to all of them, by giving to BAI, you're enabling all of those various issues, confluence of issues, reproductive rights, civil rights, labor rights, to have a place that's unfettered by corporate influence. And it's important to somebody like you, even though you have other outlets. Do you find that you can do things on BAI that you can't do? On Salon or the Village Voice or some of the other places you write I would for? say, I mean, I've been doing this so long, uh, and I'm fortunate that I am, like it says in my press pass, independent, so I am my own entity. Um, I will say that I was on, on with John Fugel's guy on Serious Progre Progress 127, and that's a great outlet. But, but generally, in terms of being able to open up a microphone and open it up to people to call in, and so much comes out of that alchemy, the ability of individuals to directly interact with a broadcast in real time, that is essential for a democracy. And that's what that's a franchise that, that you know, there isn't uh, there isn't any kind of legacy like that that's hanging around. That's why this is it. I uh, talk about your book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work. Am I embarrassing you if I ask you if there's another book in the works? Uh, there is. And I'm also kind of um, coming to a parting of ways with Democracy at Work. And uh, uh, time. there's a new edition, which is the 2020-24 edition. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that I, I want to um, make sure that people understand is this power that 85 million poor and low income people have one third of the electorate. I want to be part of mobilizing that. I mean, consider that it's they're 43 percent of the voting population in Florida, 33.76 percent in Texas. I, I really want to dedicate myself to this mobilization because we have to. Uh, vote the Republicans into extinction so they can take their place right next to the Whig Party. Well, that's Bob Henley's solution to all <laughs> the problems of America. Thank you so much for being with us again. All right. 
Thanks, and, brother. Take care. And sadly, that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. That's L-O-P-A-T-E. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already or who can do it again to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever is comfortable for you, as long as you wish to do it. It allows us to plan, to ban, it allows us to plan for the future. And um, maybe I'll go to the dentist and get my teeth fixed. And we'll send a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if Leonard Lopate at large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it? And you can do that again by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. Um, We are the only uh, totally tax-deductible radio station, I think, in New York. Make it... uh, uh, So don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of London, located at large. And from all of us at this station, thank you. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you.